One of the themes, as it were, that runs through the Bible is uh, the theme of marriage. Uh, The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. We don't often think about that, but how does the Bible begin? God creates everything in Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis 2 we get sort of the zoomed-in story of how God created the first man from the dust, Adam, and then he caused the man to fall asleep and uh, took his rib and fashioned that into the first woman, Eve. And the Bible says that God brought the woman to the man, right? And the man rejoiced, right? This is, this is now flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And that amounts to, right, that, that presentation, that moment amounts to the first wedding, and that first wedding establishes the pattern for marriage all throughout the Bible. So that at the end of Genesis 2, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then at the end of the Bible, there's another wedding, an even bigger wedding. Right In Revelation 19, it talks about the marriage supper or the marriage feast of the Lamb. Right, So it says, John tells us, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, here's what's really important to remember about Every wedding in the Bible. Every wedding in the Bible has one bride and one groom, and you gotta know which one's which and who you are and where you fit, right? When it includes you. Because in Revelation 19, the wedding includes us, right? It's the marriage of the Lamb, and who's the bride? The church, right? The people of God. So in Ephesians 5, for example, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And then he says, he quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, here's why I say it's important that when we think about these weddings, right, that we remember there's one bride and one groom, and we need to keep straight who that is. The reason why is because in the ministry of John the Baptist, some of John's disciples got confused about who the groom was. And so, I mean, excuse me, who the, yeah, who the groom was. And so they were confused about who the bride belonged to. And so they ended up with some, what appeared to be some 
jealousy at worst or confusion at best about what should have been happening with John and Jesus. And the same kind of thing can happen today where we get confused about who the bride belongs to, who the bride is betrothed to, who the groom is, right, and, and who the groom is not. So I want you to look with me at John chapter 3, and we're going to pick the story up in verse 22, verse 22 of John chapter 3, and we're going to work our way all the way down to the end of the chapter. All right, here's what it says. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here's what's going on. At this point in the story of the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist. We started out with John the Baptist baptizing, right? And Jesus came to John and was baptized. And John proclaimed, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one God told me uh, is the, the Messiah, right? And so John bore witness to Jesus and uh, was bapt- uh, and baptized Jesus, but now in chapter 3, we're told that Jesus is also baptizing. His disciples are with him. They're in the Judean countryside. That's the area kind of around Jerusalem, Judea there. And uh, John is also baptizing, right? And I wouldn't be a good Baptist if I didn't point out that it says there's lots of water there, right? Because if you baptize, By immersion, you need a lot of water, right? So uh, they're baptizing there, and John is baptizing. He still has disciples. Jesus is baptizing. He has disciples, right? But um, what's happening, we see in verse 26, John's disciples come to him and say, Hey, he who is with you across the Jordan, they're talking about Jesus, right? To whom you bore witness, 
Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Okay, this is an old, old problem, right? We used to have a big crowd. Now they've got a big crowd and that's a problem, right? Because we want to keep the crowd. We want the people to be with us. They, these disciples, they think very highly of John, no doubt. Um, and they are apparently concerned, perhaps even complaining about the fact that all these people have now been attracted to Jesus and are no longer flocking to John as they had been before. Now, to John's credit, this does not bother John at all. Right? When they come to him and they say, notice they call him rabbi, he's their teacher, they're following him. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John doesn't say, you're right, staff meeting, let's see if we can figure this out. What are we going to do? We need some new plans, you know, some new ways to attract people. No, verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What does that mean? John says, God's doing this. If the people are going to Jesus, it's because God has given them to Jesus. When they were coming to me, it's because God wanted them to come to me. For a time, I had a big following because God gave that to us. But now people are following Jesus and that's what God wants to be happening. It's outside of my control. It's not something I can manipulate or that I even want to interfere with. This is God's doing. No one can receive anything unless it is given him from heaven, unless it's given him from God. And then he says, verse 28, you guys ought to know better. Right? Now that's my paraphrase, right? You guys ought to know better. Why ought they to know better? Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You have heard me say, I'm not the Messiah. I'm here to prepare the way for the Messiah. I was sent to prepare people to follow Jesus. My ministry, in other words, has been successful because people are following Jesus. That's what I was sent here to do, and you guys have heard me say that. You know that's why I'm here. This ought not to be bothering you. You ought to be looking at this the same way I am and thinking, hey, look, look what an impact our teacher has had. He's pointed all these people to Jesus, and there they go, following Jesus, just like they're supposed to, just like God designed. And then John brings in this wedding imagery, right, to help them and to help us understand what's going on, why John is responding the way that he is. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, we don't, usually don't say bridegroom anymore. We just shorten it to groom. That's what he's talking about. Right? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, who's got the bride right now? Jesus does. Right? The bride is the people, the people of God. And John's saying, the bride has gone to Jesus because Jesus is the groom. He's the husband. He's the one these people are supposed to be 
betrothed to, married to, right? United to. So Jesus is the groom. The people are the bride. Who's John? John says in the middle of verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, John says. Think of him as the best man. What is the best man's role at the wedding? It's not to fight the groom over the bride. Right? The, The best man's job is to stand there with the groom and rejoice that his friend is getting to marry his bride. That's his job. That's what John is doing. John says, I'm just glad that Jesus is here. I'm just glad that I get to hear his voice. I'm rejoicing in this wedding. I'm rejoicing that the groom is present. I'm rejoicing that that the bride is going to the groom. And I'm just glad to be here and celebrate it. I'm not trying to, you know, worm my way into this relationship, steal this bride away from her rightful groom. I'm his friend. I want this marriage to take place. I'm here to make sure this happens. So I'm joyful, right? He says at the end of verse 29, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. Everything I wanted to happen is happening. The bride has gone to the groom. The people have gone to Jesus. My role has been fulfilled. So now what? Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Once the wedding is over, the best man's role is done. He doesn't keep following the bride and the groom around. and you know. No, 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 no. He, it becomes about... The bride and the groom and the best man's role diminishes. He slips into the background. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so that's what John says. He says, uh, you know, uh, attendance, right, at my baptisms needs to start declining. That's what needs to happen, John's saying. My my ministry needs to shrink. Uh, I need to recede into the background More people need to be following Jesus. His crowds need to get bigger. He needs to increase. I need to decrease. It's all about Jesus, and it is not about me. That's what John is saying. Now, what's most surprising about that is how John's disciples seem to completely miss it. Right? Because if they had been listening to John like they were supposed to, and if they had understood the things that John had said, they would have known that Jesus was greater than John, more important than John, that John's whole ministry was designed to get people to follow Jesus. So what went wrong? Where was the disconnect for John's disciples. Well, the way they responded was unfortunate, but it was not unique. It's a common problem where people make too much of the messengers pointing to Jesus and not enough of Jesus himself. Now, I say it's not 
a unique problem, not only because it happens today, but also because it's not the only time it happened in the Bible. Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, had to address the same kind of problem. He said in chapter 1, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, reading between the lines there, you can tell there's probably some division that he's trying to get them to overcome. What's the division? He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, the church is dividing around their favorite preachers. I I think Peter's the best. I I follow him. No way, man. Have you heard Paul preach? Man, he could out-preach Peter any day. I follow Paul. That's wrong. I mean, look. How many more letters does Paul have than Peter? And, and there, I mean, they wouldn't have had them all then, by the, but you know what I'm saying. So they're, they're dividing into these groups, right? And um, Paul says, what are you doing? Peter preaches Jesus. Apollos preaches Jesus. I preach Jesus. You are baptized into the name of Paul. You are baptized in the name of Jesus. I didn't die for you. I can't save you. Neither can Peter. And neither can Apollos. And neither can anybody else except Jesus. But again, here's what happens over and over and over. Faithful pastors, authors, theologians, whoever, they're pointing people to Jesus. And some of the people they're pointing to Jesus end up, instead of focusing on Jesus, focusing on that messenger. And in doing so, they completely miss what that messenger is saying, right? It's not the messenger's fault. It's not John's fault that his disciples were all upset about all these these people following Jesus. He told them, you can bear me witness. (laughs) This is what I've been saying. This is what I was here for. I, I didn't tell you that my goal was to get as many people to follow me and be baptized by me as possible. I told you my goal was to point people to Jesus. That's why God sent me. But we, as humans, sinful, broken humans, we have a tendency to make more of the messenger than of the message. We pay more attention to the person who's speaking or writing or teaching or whatever than to the person they're pointing us to, right? To Jesus himself. So that's something we have to be aware of in our own lives. It's very easy to sort of get pulled in uh, where our focus is on the wrong person, where we miss the point, right? Jesus is greater than the apostles, he's greater than Pilate, he's greater than Caesar, he's greater than the greatest preacher with the biggest podcast numbers and all that. He alone is the greatest because he alone is God. 
He alone is the Savior. So there's a big difference between John and Jesus. Right? And John, in the Gospel of John, has been making that clear all along the way. And John the Baptist himself has made that clear from the beginning. And here again, we get reminded of just how great the difference between Jesus and John really is. Right? Notice verse 31. It says, He who comes from above, that's Jesus, of course, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, that's John and all the rest of us, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Verse 32. He, the one who's come from above all, uh, come, from, come from heaven and is above all, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So what is John telling us here? First of all, he's saying Jesus is from heaven and John is from the earth. Though people looking at Jesus and John would not be able to tell just from their physical appearance that there was this great gulf between the two. We know, and John is bearing witness to this truth, that Jesus is not like any other man. John and Jesus were both born of a woman, but Jesus had no earthly father. Jesus was born of a virgin because he's the son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's God become man, God in the flesh. John's just a man, a great man but just a man. Jesus is above all. Not just all men, but all things. He's greater than all the angels. He rules over everything and everyone. John, again, is just an earthly man. He's got no authority besides what God has given him. He tells us that Jesus speaks the words of God, but John speaks merely in an earthly way. That's true even though John is a prophet speaking on behalf of God, but he's still speaking in a human way. His words are still not to be compared with the words of Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus could say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The prophets come and they say, thus says the Lord. Jesus comes and says, I tell you the truth. This is what I say. And the crowds marveled at the teaching of Jesus because he spoke as one who had authority unlike anybody else they had ever heard because only he could speak on his own authority because he not only speaks the words of God, he is the word of God. That's what John said from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when the Word who became flesh speaks, guess what? God speaks. And that's why John says um, there in verse 33, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
Because when you hear Jesus speak, you're hearing God speak. So when you affirm that what Jesus is saying is true, you're just saying God is true. Because that's whose testimony you're receiving. That's who you are listening to. John also tells us in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. All things. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one through whom all things were made. Right Earlier, uh, when John told us, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Right? John now tells us, well, what has Jesus been given from heaven? Everything. All things have been placed in Jesus' hands. So all of this is why John said, all the way back in chapter 1, from the very beginning, he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I don't even deserve to touch his shoelaces. He's so much greater than me. He's not just a better man. It's not just that Jesus has, you know, more charisma or popularity or something than John. No, Jesus is greater than John because he is God in the flesh. And that is why verse 36 makes sense. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Everything hinges on how we respond to Jesus. Because... Jesus is God. He's the only one. He's the only Savior. But notice something John says that you might not expect. Earlier, in verse 18, Jesus said, uh, whoever believes in him, that is the Son that God has given, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So when we get to verse 36, we would expect it to say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe shall not see life. But that's not what it says. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Wait a minute. Why does it say that? Why is it different? What does that mean? The reason that gives us pause is, well, one of the reasons why it might give us pause is because we're inclined to think that there is a third option. The options that this verse gives us is you believe and obey or you don't believe and don't obey. We're inclined to believe that there's, there's a third option where you believe but don't obey. The Bible says that's not an option. That, that category doesn't exist. Right? So because that category doesn't exist, he can say whoever believes has life, whoever doesn't obey doesn't. Right? Remember James says in James 2, faith, believing, without works is dead. It's not real faith. It's not saving faith. Right? Now, this is not talking about perfection. 
This is not talking about being as spiritually mature as you could possibly be. That's the only option. That's not what it's saying. Right? So don't, don't over-interpret it. Right? Don't, don't take it too far to the other side. But listen to what it is saying. If you believe Jesus, you're going to follow it. That's really all it's saying. If you believe Jesus, you're going to do what he says. Not perfectly. Not all the time. But some of the time. Hopefully a lot of the time. But not none of the time. I know that's terrible grammar, but it makes sense, right? Not none of the time. Okay, the category of I believe in Jesus, but I don't ever do what he says. Not a biblical category. You can call that faith if you want, but James says it's dead. So it's not going to do you any good. If you have real faith, you're going to follow Jesus. You're going to be seeking to be like him. You're going to be seeking to obey him. You're not going to do it perfectly. Not even the apostles did it perfectly. But you're going to try to follow him. And believing in him, right, leads to obeying him. And those who believe, he says, have eternal life. Not because they obey. They're not earning it by obeying. You receive it because you believe. But if you don't really believe, then you also won't obey. And if you don't obey, you're not going to have life. No eternal life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on you, which is a terrible thing, an awful thing. One of the reasons why it can say, if you, don't, if you believe versus if you don't obey, is because part of Obeying is believing. Right? Jesus commands us to believe. Right? Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus said. So, believing is part of obeying Jesus. But also because the Bible is clear from beginning to end that believing God shapes the way that you live. Right? It changes what you do. It changes how you act. Real faith produces fruit. Right? There's, there's evidence of that faith. Now, we're not always the best judges of that evidence in our own life. Right? If, if you're inclined to be like, well, I, don't, I don't know. What if I don't? I think I believe. I think I obey. But I, I don't really. Just ask somebody else. Right? Ask somebody who knows you, who watches you, who's observed your life, and say, where do you think I am in that verse? Right? And be honest. And probably, right, if you're even asking the question, probably they're going to tell you, of course you believe. And here's where I see the fruit, right? Um, but we're not always the best judges, right, of, of that evidence in our own life. So uh, ask a friend if you're not sure. But all of this that John tells us, all of this he says about Jesus is true because of who Jesus is. Right? The gift of eternal life that comes to those who believe in Jesus, that's true because of who Jesus is. Those claim, that claim that whether or not you have eternal life or experience the wrath of God hinges on how you respond to this one person. That claim would be completely outrageous if it were made of any other person, even of a great prophet like John. But, 
Jesus is not any other person. He's not even just a great prophet. He is God in the flesh. He is from heaven. He is above all. He is the eternal son of God who came to earth, took on flesh, suffered and died for sinners, was buried and raised on the third day, securing eternal salvation and fellowship with God for everyone who trusts in him. And the Bible says if you reject that, the consequences are going to be terrible because of who you're rejecting. But if you receive that, the blessings, the grace that you receive is beyond anything you can imagine. Jesus wants people to believe. We want people to believe. Remember we saw earlier in chapter 3, it told us God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He could have done that without sending Jesus. He sent Jesus because He wants us to be saved. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be reconciled to Him. And so He sent Jesus. And there's no one else like Him. And there's no other offer like this one. There's no salvation in any other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than by the name of Jesus. And aren't we grateful for the privilege of hearing that name and that gospel?